Father, thank you so much for um, just the opportunity we have to hear from your word. Um, Father, we just live in a world that is so confused and we worship a God that is not confusing. And yet we still become so confused with who you are and what it looks like to live for you. So, Father, just please remove um, the blindness of our eyes and give us ears that might be able to hear um, so that you might be worshipped um, as the God of all glory and majesty and that we might see how beautiful and wonderful it is to be a Christian. Please, Father, do that for us. And we can only do that um, if you and your Holy Spirit move in our hearts. So please do that, Father. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So just to give you a statement before we move on to this whole new section in Philippians, let me give you a statement to sum up everything that's come before. Everything basically from Philippians 1 verse 1 to Philippians 1 26. And it's a statement I actually gave you last week. And the statement is, the glory of Christ outshines the dark difficulties of life. That could basically sum up everything that's come before. That sums up um, Paul expressing thankfulness for the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel. That kind of sums up the prayer that he prays for them, the kind of people that they would be in this world. And it definitely sums up the update that Paul gives on his circumstances, which is verse 12 to 26. And we took four weeks to go through that section. That's Paul explaining uh, his circumstances, what's been going on with him. And throughout that explanation, Paul has been explaining to you how he's thinking about his circumstances in light of the gospel, in light of his love for the gospel. He's been explaining this gospel is so glorious And even without explaining all the details of the gospel, he understands that any Christian who truly loves Christ would resonate with the way Paul talks about devoting our lives and living for the gospel and sharing the gospel because of our love for Christ. That's what Paul has been explaining so much. And one of the things that he's been explaining is that suffering doesn't get in the way of the gospel. Not only does it not get in the way of the advance of the gospel, it also doesn't get in the way of our hope and our joy and our condition, the way we live our lives. Because Paul is not just trying to give us contentment in suffering. He's not just saying, I'm giving you a way to look at Christ and just be okay with it, to just be able to deal with it. No, he's trying to show us that suffering is necessary It's important. It's essential. This is a reality that doesn't halt the gospel. It advances the gospel. Because God doesn't just accidentally make everything into good when we suffer. But suffering is actually an important, integral part of him working everything towards good. And we're going to get into some of the details for that today. But before we get into those details, we need to understand what Paul is going to be doing in this section that sets up the rest of the book of Philippians. And we know that this is a new important section because of the very first uh, sentence in verse 27, where Paul begins by saying only, and then he gives a command. He says only, and then he gives a command. And this is actually the first command that we've gotten in Philippians. Before this, Paul hasn't told us to do anything. He's just updated us on what he is doing and how he is thinking about them. But now he's telling us how we need to think. Paul is turning the attention to the church in Philippi and he's saying, you need to respond to everything that I've just told you. And you need to respond in a certain way. And the command that he gives them is going to basically be the command that all the other commands in Philippians could boil down to. It's like this command sums up as like the thesis, all the other commands. You might even say that this is like a table of contents, this paragraph, because it is basically going to contain all of the most important themes that Paul will go on to talk about for the rest of the book. That's how important this passage is. And even though this passage won't include joy, in terms of he doesn't actually mention joy, which feels weird because joy comes up so many times in Philippians. The reason it doesn't come up is because Paul's assumption is that if you're a Christian and truly understand this command and you take it to heart and you want to live based on this command, the consequence will be joy. The natural consequence will be joy. That's Paul's expectation. 
And this is basically what this paragraph summarizes in, in a sentence. Live for Christ in all circumstances. Live for Christ in all circumstances. And all of those words are important. Live, as in actively do things. Second word, for Christ. He is your chief motivation in everything you do. And the last phrase, in all circumstances. There shouldn't be a circumstance where we say it is way too hard to live for God in this circumstance. And Paul is going to explain why that's the case. But we need to know that the text is actually saying this. So if you look at verse 27, you'll see that the very first line says, only let your manner of life, your manner of life. Some of your uh, Bibles say, conduct yourselves. And that verb is actually different from the normal verb that Paul uses. Normally he uses just live or walk. But this verb is actually literally translated as citizening. Live as a citizen. If you go later in the book of Philippians, there's a verse that is very famous in chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Raise your hand if you remember that verse. Our citizenship is in heaven. So many of you are familiar with that verse. That word that he uses for citizenship, he uses here in let your manner of life. It's the same word, but he just turns it into a verb. And the point that he's making is explaining that our future in heaven, which the gospel promises us, through Christ we are assured to go to heaven, that future must control your present life. If you know that is where you're going to be, guaranteed in Christ, that should affect the way you live in a dramatic way. It's very similar to what he says in a book we've already covered, Colossians, where in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Fix your mind on things above, not on things of earth, because you are going to be above one day with Christ. The whole point is our gospel future is assured, and that ensures that your present ministry, which is the way you should think about your life as a ministry, will endure and advance for Christ, even through suffering, even through suffering, just like Paul has explained. And let me remind you from the context why that language would track with the Philippians so much. Living as a citizen, all of us are citizens. You are American citizens. I am a Canadian citizen, but we all live in a nation somewhere and we all have our allegiance to a nation. And based on how much you love the nation you live in, that affects the way you live. If you see someone um, and their house has a giant American flag, they must really love America. Um, but if you see someone who has an American flag on fire, they don't probably love America as much as the other person. And that will actually be proven in not just the flag or the burning of the flag, but in the way they actually live their life. They'll say different things from each other, dramatically different things. And the Philippians totally understood that because they lived in a city called Philippi. And if you remember from the context, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was not geographically in Rome, but it was considered Roman. And that was really awesome. It was really awesome to be considered a Roman colony because all of the privileges of being a Roman citizen were now theirs, which means they got to live much more comfortably. They got to trust that they'd be taken more care of than other people. They got to live lives with a lot more assurance than many other places in the ancient Near Eastern context. And being a Roman was not only a privilege, but it naturally made them feel dedicated to Rome. When you're given a lot of responsibilities, you naturally feel a kind of affection for the place you live in. And these people felt very proud to be considered Roman. And we should get that on some level because I don't know your attitude to United States, but you'd be surprised at how awesome you can feel if you leave this country and go to another. Because you can say that and it's like pulling out a card that says you are a celebrity. That's a privilege. And maybe you don't feel it now, but you might one day if you go to another country and you see the joy or the serious jealousy that other people have on their faces. This is something that you should be able to track with just as the Philippians were be able to track with this. 
But Paul is saying that that privilege cannot outweigh the spiritual privileges that you have in Christ. You are citizens, if you are in Christ, of a much better world. A much, much better world. Heaven is your home and Christ is your king. And therefore, everything needs to be about Christ's message. Which is the gospel. Every citizen of heaven will for a short time live on earth and they will naturally abide by a certain nation's laws. But those laws can never surpass the law of the gospel, which might feel like a very contradictory way to say it. But what I'm saying is the gospel has a demand on the way you live. When Paul was angry at Peter for eating with the Jewish people and neglecting the Gentile people that he was called to be an apostle over. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, your conduct is not in step with the gospel. The gospel should have an effect on the way you live. Because the gospel is pointing you to where you will live forever. That should affect your temporary life. C.S. Lewis, who many of you have heard of, he said it this way. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and also help others do the same. That's the way you should think about the gospel's radical change in how you view your life. And Paul wants that to be so compelling to them. A joy to honor Christ because you're going to be with him forever that he doesn't want it to be based on him. That's why he says in in verse 27, I want this to be true whether I come and see you or I'm absent. He's already told them he's very sure that he's going to see them, but just in case because he's not God. So he's not omniscient. If anything happens to me, I don't want you to just live like me because I'm your hero. I want you to live the way you live because you love Christ. This concept is so important that that Paul ends up breaking it down in a certain way and elaborating on that idea, living as his sin, for the rest of this paragraph. And you can kind of break it down in three ways. And the third way is really the heart of of this text, the third way. But all three of the ways are this. Number one, he's going to explain what that means. He's going to explain what it means to be a citizen in in the simplest terms, what it means to be a citizen. And then the second thing he's going to do is explain why that matters, why you need to think about being a citizen of heaven and why that's so important to continue to view life as. But then the third is really where he brings everything home, which is he's going to encourage you why you can do that. Because when you hear why it matters, you might feel like you can't do this. And the reality is you can't do this unless you really take to heart the encouragement that Paul is going to give you. Why it matters, or sorry, what that means, why it matters, and then why you can do this. But we need to do the other, first two, uh, the other two of them first. So let's start with the first one, which is this, what it means to be a citizen. And that's verse 27 where Paul says this. Only let your life your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That one main verb to live in a manner, you can sum up everything that comes after in two ways because all the verbs are subsequent to that main thing. But Everything else can basically get summed up in in two ways. What does it mean to be a citizen? Number one, it means to live worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. And that's the words he uses. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy has the word worth in it. Something valuable. And so to live a life worthy means recognizing the value of something and responding accordingly. Responding appropriately. The idea is the gospel has infinite value. And it is so valuable that God demands that people who believe in it have lives that match it. Lives that put the value of the gospel on display. Those who know the value of the gospel will want to prove its value in the way they live their lives. Or you could put it this way if you're trying to personally apply it. The value of the gospel 
should cause you to reevaluate everything else. The value of the gospel should cause you to reevaluate everything else, especially your life, especially the way you live your life. Because Paul is talking about privilege. And he's comparing the privilege of being a citizen of any nation on earth with being a citizen under Christ. When Christ is your king, the standard of life that he provides is worth more than anything else. And so therefore living a worthy life is a life that constantly recognizes that even though we are so unworthy of that future home, we still have been called by Christ to live that life. We are so unworthy, and yet he's called us into his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is that calling? He says later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, We exhorted and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what Christ has called you into. To be removed from darkness, to be removed from slavery, to be removed from hopelessness, and to replace all of that with his light, his freedom, and his hope. That's what God has called us to. That should affect our life. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And we're going to explain more of that when we get to places like Philippians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the surpassing worth of Christ over any kind of legalism in our lives. But suffice it to say now, what he's explaining is God wants to be glorified in your life that is lived righteously, but that is showing off his grace. That is showing off how gracious he is that results in a life of thankfulness. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. But it also means something else. And that something else comes with a lot of words to explain how important this one is as well. And the second reason, the second explanation of what it means to live as a citizen is to stand and strive with others in the gospel. To stand and strive with others in the gospel. Because Paul says he wants to hear that they are standing firmly in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul uses two verbs, standing and striving. Striving can be translated as struggling. And then both of those verbs have a personal pronoun attached, like the, the, the we personal program, pronoun. So he doesn't want you to think about standing or striving unless you're thinking about doing it with other people. That's what he's trying to push. He's explaining that partnership in the gospel is not just ideal, it's essential. You need other people. No Christian is comfortable living like they're on an island. And the reason is because our spiritual survival is at stake. Because even though Paul normally talks about unity because he wants us to love each other and he wants us to be united so we can build each other up, which is still 100% true, Paul's focus here is on spiritual protection and endurance. That's what Paul's talking about because he's using really aggressive words. They're actually words that describe either military activity or athletics. Those are the two ways that these verbs normally come up. So, for example, to stand firm, it means to maintain allegiance, which if you think of a military, that's like telling someone they can't desert their brothers on the field because they're at war and they need each other. Don't leave your post. But in an athletic sense, it's like running without hydrating yourself with water and then fainting or falling over. He says you need to hydrate yourself and the hydration comes from people. That's how you don't faint. That's how you don't fall over. And the other verb is strive, which is struggling or wrestling. It's, it's an aggressive term. It's like complete vigorous labor. And he uses that later in Philippians 4.3 to describe the partners he had in the gospel. But again, in military terms, it's like when soldiers invade a house and in order to get in, they have to have a kind of cooperation where they're using hand signals rather than talking. And everybody else on the team's got to know exactly what they're doing or else they're going to have a serious fight when they get into that house. And in the same sense, in an athletic sense, you could think about a relay race. And in a relay race, it's obviously essential for every individual to be a good runner. But it also really matters that you can cooperate well enough to pass the baton because if the baton falls, it's all over. And you're going to be fumbling all over yourself or another person or the other competitors if you're not good at that. That's the point that Paul is trying to explain. 
And he's explaining it with serious, serious words. He even emphasizes more by adding, we have to be one mind and one spirit, which is basically like saying you need to think like one person. You're part of the body of Christ, which means we should be so united. It's like we think the same. And the unity doesn't just come from the spirit, which he actually uses the word spirit, but he's probably talking about just our souls and our minds being united. Affection. But what he's really talking about seriously, besides the Holy Spirit providing unity, is that the way that you strive for unity in your own responsibility is doctrine. That's why he says the faith of the gospel. He's not saying the belief that you all have in the gospel. He's talking about upholding the biblically defined gospel. The historic church doctrines that have been explained clearly in scripture that make up how we are saved. And the reason we uphold that isn't just because we like our traditions. It's because Jesus Christ himself has explained this clearly to us. And he's promised that his church is not going to fall. And in order for it not to fall, we need to unite ourselves around what God has said will keep us together, which is the gospel. We can't be united if the gospel that saves us gets broken apart. If it gets broken apart, we get broken apart and our church gets broken apart. So obviously what you should be getting is that Paul's being really intense about this, which is kind of new in Philippians. Even in one verse, he uses pretty serious language, military athletic language. And the question you should be asking is why? Why the random, seemingly random change in tone? And that really gets to the second point of why this matters. Why this matters, which is the first statement in verse 28, where Paul says this, Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. The reason living as a citizen matters is because you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And specifically, you are going to be opposed by people if you believe the gospel. I know we all live in Orange County. I know many of you guys grew up in the church. I know many of you guys grew up in controlled environments. All of those things are wonderful. I promise you, if you believe the gospel... It's not just that people won't like you. People will hate you. People will hate you. That's what Paul is trying to explain. He explains it later in the book as well. These aren't just people like he's already mentioned in chapter 1 where he said, there's people who don't like me and they're selfish, but they're still proclaiming the gospel. These people are different. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, they're a crooked and twisted generation. They're mutilated. Later on in chapter 3, he says they're dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, which is like the worst kind of language to describe someone. And he's not trying to insult them. He's trying to be accurate. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 18, he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul isn't just talking about the opposition the Philippians will meet. He's talking about the opposition any Christian will meet. Because the citizens of the world will hate citizens of heaven because their king, which is Jesus, and their constitution, which is the gospel, is going to threaten a self-centered way of life. It's going to threaten that. Whether they believe actively or passively, just the existence of something that says, you can't be the center of the world, is going to be threatening. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, 14, to the Father saying, I've given them your word, And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Paul's not giving up on his thesis statement that it's good to be a Christian. He's not giving up on that. But he's saying that there's tragedy in it too. And the tragedy is that the gospel is the greatest news in the whole world. And yet, it puts a target on your back. That is part of what it means to be a Christian. The greatest doctrine the world has ever known is also going to be the thing that causes division between you and the world. And that's a promise. And you'll notice how short that sentence is. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. And he just wants you to sit there and think about that for a sec to just ask the simple question. Do you think that you can live for Christ if the world's going to hate you for it? Because that's why a lot of people don't live for Christ. That's it. No intellectual arguments. No difficult philosophical questions to ask. I just want to get by. I 
just don't want to be hated. That's it. Can you live that way? Is what Paul is asking. The gospel seems worth living for when things are good, but would you still live for the gospel if things go bad? Would you still live for the gospel if you're alone? You're the only person in your school. You're the only person in your family. You're the only person on your college campus. You're the only person at your job who loves the gospel. In Luke 14, Jesus himself wanted to explain the importance of this. And he uses language of cost, costliness. He explains that if you are going to build a building and if you're going to be wise, you don't just start building a building. You start counting everything that you have, the money you have, the materials you have, and you put it in front of you and you say, do I have enough? And the same thing Jesus was saying is the same thing Paul is saying, which is, have you counted the cost of Christianity? A lot of you guys are thinking about baptism, which is awesome. That's a really good question to ask if you're ready to be baptized. Have I counted the cost? Because it's going to give me everything that matters. But it's also going to strip away a lot of other things that do matter to me. Jesus himself said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Everyone who does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. Very black and white. But even as you're sitting with that, I want you to notice something interesting. Look at verse 28. Kind of a short sentence, right? Not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And then we've got all this rest of the text. Goes on from 28 all the way down to verse 30, which is a lot more words. And all of those words are about why you can do this. And that's because even though Paul wants you to know you will suffer, the heart isn't about scaring you about suffering. He's not trying to make you fear the word, the fear Jesus more than the world or fear hell more than Jesus and scare you into heaven. That's not his objective because he spends eight words on saying it's inevitable you'll suffer. And then 43 words, which is way more than eight about why you can endure suffering. If you're a Christian, it's not about you being strong. It's not about you being wise. It's not about you having everything in your life put together or being in control. It's about Christ. And it's about trusting Christ that he can allow you to endure. And that is ultimately what gets us to the third point, which is really the heart of his text, which is why you can live as a Christian, why you can live for Christ, where you can see how suffering is essential how you can endure it, and how you can be effective for Christ even in the midst of it. That's what Paul is promising. And everything really comes down to this. Paul has actually given us two battle tactics, right? So if you remember the value of the gospel and when you surround yourself with other believers, so you're in a faithful Bible-believing, God-fearing church, then that's your battle tactics. Those are the things you really need to know. But now he's going to give you Christ's battle plans. He's going to tell you about suffering from Christ's perspective. He's going to tell you what Christ is thinking about your suffering. And he's doing that to encourage you. He's doing that to encourage you. And ultimately, everything comes down uh, to the first encouragement that he gives you in verse 28, following the inevitability of opponents. He says this, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So to make sense of that question, you have to figure out what the this is. He says, this is a clear sign. So you have to ask, what is the this? What is the clear sign? What he's explaining is the sign is your opponent's antagonism, their hatred of you for the gospel, their anger that you follow the gospel. Paul's actually saying that fact is actually assuring in an interesting way. Their frustration over you because of the gospel is actually evidence that ministry is working from Christ's perspective. There's actually a lot of reasons why this is the case, but one of the reasons can be found in Acts chapter 23. So turn over to Acts chapter 23 really quick. This section is the beginning of all the rest of the book of Acts, and it's actually right before the circumstances that lead Paul to go to Rome 
where he writes Philippians. But it begins right in the middle of where Paul has been attacked by a mob. He's um, been put before this Jewish council, and he needs to defend the faith before them. And in Acts 23, verse 1, he starts this way. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And that word, live my life, is actually the only other New Testament use of the same verb, live as a citizen. So he uses the exact same word. In fact, in Philippians, he may have been thinking of this exact moment. Because it's only two times this verb shows up. Paul says, my whole life, I know and God knows, I've lived for God. But verse 2, what happens next is very surprising. It says, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul says, I truly have been a good Christian. Get slapped in the face. Literally, that's what happened. This is what Paul's response is to that. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Paul isn't responding in anger as in like sinful anger. He's righteously pointing out something very obvious. What Paul's trying to point out is that they are attacking a guy who has only ever proven that he loves God. And he actually loves God more than them. But they hate that. That doesn't make any sense. They should be able to point to the Bible and point to Paul and say, this lines up. But when he says this lines up, they hate him. What Paul's trying to point out is that The judgment that you give against me is totally unfounded. And therefore, the judgment God will put against you should be obvious. A clear sign. Maybe you're starting to connect the dots. Let me give you some more examples of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, Paul explains this. He's explained the ministry of being a Christian, what it means to live as a Christian. And he says this, We are an aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And those are to those who are perishing. So Paul is saying, when you live for Christ, it smells good to God. Weird analogy from our perspective. But what Paul is saying is, Christ is honored when two things happen. That you're explaining something to Christians and you're explaining something to non-Christians. And from the non-Christian perspective, when you share the gospel and you hate it, you're pointing out to them they're dead. You're responding like a dead person. And your deadness is obvious to me. Not because I'm better than you, but because God has revealed how dead people act. This is how dead people act. They hear the words of eternal life And they looked directly at the person who said them, and they said, I want to die. That's insane. That's nuts. That's what it means to tell someone that they are going from death to death. They are being foolish by proving their rejection of Christ. Part of gospel ministry, Paul is trying to explain, is being opposed for believing the gospel and realizing how ridiculous that is. How ridiculous and absurd opposition truly is. Here's one more example for you. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. Paul says this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That word destruction, same word as ours. A clear sign of their destruction. And then he continues by saying this, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. That's a long sentence, so maybe that feels a little complicated. So this is breaking it down a little bit. God is saying this, I have allowed righteous people to suffer from unrighteous, ungodly people. So they would see how unrighteous and how ungodly it is to reject Christ. And I've allowed you to suffer it firsthand so you can see firsthand how merciful and patient I am to those people. Because I should destroy them just like that. The moment they've sinned, hell, that should be God's attitude. And it's not. 
Instead, he allows people to live for decades. 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, God allows people who spit in his face every day to live. That's mercy. And you get to see it. You get to see God's mercy when they reject you for the gospel. But it's even more than that. When they reject you because you love the gospel, you get to see God's mercy to you too. Because if you believe the gospel, you recognize that their attitude used to be your attitude too. And when you see their foolishness, you see how much God has saved you from your foolishness. That's grace. That's why it's not an absolutely terrible thing to experience opposition to your life, suffering for the gospel in your life, because the reality is we need to see how unrighteous, how unfounded, how unacceptable it is to hate the gospel, truly. That's why it's a clear sign of destruction and a clear sign of salvation from God. It's a clear sign to them that if you hate the gospel, you hate everything that's good. You hate mercy. The gospel is the most wonderful message ever, and hating it is crazy. But it's also a clear sign to you of your salvation. It's a clear sign to you that God keeps his promises of salvation. God has mercifully saved me from the judgment that I am seeing other people deserve. I deserve it too, but I'm seeing the grace that God has given to me. I should be in their situation, yet I'm in this situation full of grace. That's why I need to see this firsthand and experience it firsthand. The reality is there are a lot of reasons people are offended by the gospel. And none of them are reasonable. None of them. Because the gospel attacks the immorality and disease that's in society. And the disease that's in us sin. And it points us to a savior. It's like penicillin dropping into the middle of a country where everyone is suffering from something that this penicillin could save. And instead of loving it and taking it and experiencing the joy of being cured from that sickness, people see penicillin as the disease instead. And then they kill the doctors. That's what you need to experience. That's what Paul is saying is the joy of actually experiencing that. Not the joy of the pain, but the joy of the reality of mercy that you only get if you suffer for the gospel. I heard an illustration just recently from a book that probably all of you have heard of, A Christmas Carol. Maybe you're like me, and so much of that story is wrapped up in the Muppets version of it. Um, but if you've seen the, the real book, you'll see all sorts of illustrations that magnify the gospel. It's, it's a really wonderful book. I haven't read it in a long time, but there's different illustrations in it I remember. And one of them is when Marley shows up. Um, in the Muppets version, it's two Marleys, so twice as good. But the book is still good. And when Marley shows up, it's Scrooge, who's the, anti- the main character, you know, who's a miserly, selfish man who loves money and loves himself. And his old business partner who dies comes back from the dead and appears to him as a ghost. And Scrooge is terrified. And Marley's coming to warn him of his future. And the reality is that when Marley shows up, he's not just a dude with raggedy clothes or something. He's covered in chains. He's covered in chains. And Scrooge naturally asks him, why are you covered in chains? And he responds to him. He says, I wear this chain because I forged it in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it out of my own free will and out of my own free will, I wore it. Does that pattern seem strange to you? Every single ounce of judgment is metaphored in those chains. Sometimes we have this weird discussion about sovereignty versus free will. And I like the way R.C. Sproul once said it. Every Christian has free will. And we freely use it to reject Christ. And the reality is that even though that should shock us, and even though it should shock us, and it's good to be shocked by that, again, Paul is trying to say that even though it's tragic, even though it's painful, even though none of us want to gloat over anyone, nor should we, that we were saved and others weren't, even though that it is a terrible experience to be opposed by the gospel, there is an encouragement here. 
And it's not in comparing yourself to others. It's by just looking at what Christ is trying to show you. And the encouragement is this. God wants you to know that if you get rejected, you're still faithful. And if you get rejected, God is still working. And if you get rejected, it might even be that the clear sign of your salvation and their destruction might be used by the Holy Spirit that they would notice it. That sign that's clear to you might also be clear to them. Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but that you should suffer for his sake. And the only way that you can truly understand suffering is actually working out is to trust that Christ is actually using it for good. Christ said that you will suffer, therefore it's essential. Therefore it advances the gospel. Therefore it advances your understanding and your growth and your thankfulness to God. That unbelief is so foolish. That's why unbelief is a sin. It's foolish. It doesn't make sense. And in the same way, it shouldn't make any sense that God saves any of us And yet he saved so many of us. And that's kind of why unjust suffering is a mercy. Because it's a reminder of God's mercy to us. The reality is, and I'll say this very, very quickly, there's three other hints of things that Paul actually mentions in this text that that take up the rest of what he mentions. But all of those three little hints about what God is doing in suffering, they're all involved in that main encouragement. But if you want to think of them separately, you can. But they're this. Number one, suffering's ordained. Suffering's ordained. He says that your salvation is from God, verse 28. and verse 29, he says it's been granted to you or it's been allowed to happen to you. That's sovereignty language. It's not an accident that people suffer. God's allowing you to suffer because he's promised it's effective, it's important, and it's necessary. That's why he's allowed it to happen. Suffering's ordained which also should just show you how dependent we need to be on God. If you want a great Bible verse, one of my devotions led me to Psalm 18, 2 and 3. And in Psalm 18, Paul begins by describing God's protection over us with about seven or eight different words to describe God. God's our refuge, our shield, our stronghold, the horn of our salvation, our stronghold, our rock, our rock again, my God He just continues in like two verses. And the reason that he can claim to be that is because he is in control of your life. Number two, suffering is a gift. Suffering is a gift because the word granted in verse 29 actually means given as a gift. It's been granted to you. It's been a gift of you to suffer. And Paul says it is just as much a gift as your belief is. Because for the sake of Christ, it's been granted for you to believe and to suffer both it's a blessing and the reason it's a blessing is because every christian wants to serve christ we want to follow in his first steps and if god says that the way of the cross is the way of christ then we're okay with that that is a blessing because if he says we're going to be effective in it then we want to follow in him because god has ultimately promised us to use shakespeare language Whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune and take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them. Which is a nerdy way to say, even if everything sucks, that's what that means. If everything sucks, Philippians 2.13, God works in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure. If everything sucks, God's in control and he's using you. Number three, and this is what Paul is explaining in verse 30. He says this, Suffering's a legacy. Suffering's a legacy, which means you're not the only one who's going to suffer. Sometimes when you suffer, it can feel like God's targeting you. Tim Keller had a good quote about when you suffer, it can feel like since you can't think of a reason for suffering, that means God doesn't have a reason for suffering. And that is not true. God is infinite and has infinitely good reasons why he should allow us to suffer. And that's why he's allowed so many people who have come before you and so many people after you to suffer. You're not alone in this. We have spiritual solidarity in suffering. 
That's why in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 11, one of the beautiful pictures we have of the end of the world is all of the martyrs for Christ echoing together, God, when are you going to fix this? And he fixes it in the next chapter. Revelation 7, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, never thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Suffering is gonna feel so small when we get to heaven. Hope-filled, heaven-centered, solidarity and suffering comes when you know many other people have proved before you this is the way of the cross. And let me give you an example to end this. I learned about a man uh, this week named Charles Simeon. I think there's a picture of him. That's a nice picture. He looks nicer there. Some of his other pictures he doesn't look as nice. Charles Simeon was a partier and a godless man who lived in a godless age and he went to a godless college later when he became a christian he said that he'd rather kill his son than let him go to the college he went to which is obviously being over dramatic but what he was saying is that he was a terrible guy and one day because of unique circumstances he was forced to take communion and so he decided in that moment that he should figure out what communion was because the more he heard about it the more he was terrified of his situation before god And he read a lot of books that were not good. And he finally read one book that explained that all the judgment he deserved for his godlessness was put on Christ on the cross. And that God did it because he loved him. And it radically transformed his life. And even though he went home and shared the gospel with his father who never was saved, he shared it with his brothers and all of them were saved. The rest of his life he wanted to be a pastor And so he prayed to God that when he graduated from Cambridge in England, that he would be able to be pastor of the chapel next door. And one day that wish was granted, but he also found out some very troubling news, which is that no one in that church wanted him to be the pastor. Nobody. But he truly felt called to be that pastor. And so he determined to be that pastor for 54 years. For five years... They didn't want him to preach the Sunday morning. They had no control. So they let his assistant preach the Sunday evening sermons as a way to spite him. And eventually when that guy left, they got a new assistant and they allowed him to preach for seven years. For 12 years straight, every single Sunday evening was a reminder that the people he came to serve hated him. Back then in those old churches, they had little doors on the pews that you could get in. The congregants used to lock the doors. So that everyone who wanted to come to listen to him would have to wait in the aisles. And eventually when they started bringing chairs into the aisles, the congregation would come in before and they'd throw all the chairs outside. So they'd either have to stand up, sit down on the ground, which was dirty, or they'd have to leave. A lot of students from Cambridge started to listen to Simeon, and that was basically social suicide. Not only students hated them and called them Simeonites as like slang, it was like a dirty word, But even professors hated them. And so professors would refuse to give them honors, some of them even to graduate, if they found out that they even liked anything about Charles Simeon. And yes, he was a sinner, but he had done nothing wrong. And yet when a brother wrote him to ask him how he was doing and ask him how he could handle suffering, this is what he said. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. While I am getting through a hedge, if my head and my shoulders are safely through, then I can bear the pricking of my legs. Which is just a nice way of saying, if I'm going to go to heaven, I don't really care how much I suffer on earth. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all of his suffering and triumphed over death. And let us follow him patiently, because we shall soon be partakers of his victory. If you're a Christian... You want to be like that. If that doesn't make sense to you, that's a sign of your destruction. The reality is that what Paul is trying to explain to us is that you are going to suffer in this world one way or the other. But you can suffer two ways. 
One is you could suffer an entire life full of trying to satisfy things that will never satisfy, drinking waters of this world and always coming up thirsty, feeling the loneliness, emptiness, lack of identity and value that death guarantees to you. That's one way you can live. Or you could look to Christ. And you can see that one day in eternity, he's going to wipe away every tear. His image is going to rest on us in glorified new bodies that he's created. And he's going to pour his love out on us eternally as we worship him forever. And in the meantime, we get to suffer, but we know it's meaningful. And we get to save other people from the sinking ship that we're on. That's the blessing of suffering in Christ. Which one do you want? Let's pray. Father, suffering is real and scary and every Christian suffers from worry and anxiety. But Father, you are greater than our weakness. You are greater than our small perspective. Father, I just pray that what Paul is trying to explain would be so clear to these students that there is a ridiculous way to live And there is a way to live in reality. Father, we don't want to be arrogant Christians. We we don't want to scorn this world as if we are better than them. We don't want to boast in ourselves and our faith. We want to boast in you. We want to trust you in the midst of suffering. But Father, we want to see, even in the midst of something as difficult and tragic as opposition, that you are really doing something through the gospel. You really are revealing to us the value of the gospel, even in suffering. Father, we won't see it unless you show it to us. That you take our stubborn hearts of stone and you transform them to be spiritually minded. To be spiritually strengthened. And to see spiritual reality, the real reality we actually live in. So that we would worship you and we would sacrifice everything to live for you. And Father, even as we continue in the book of Philippians... Give us hearts that want to think that way, that want to soak up your commands, that want to soak up your perspective so that we can be the people that you've called us to be. Father, we thank you because we can trust you and know that you can provide abundantly more than we can ask or think. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.